Zephaniah 3, beginning in verse 8. This is the word of Almighty God. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word which endures and is profitable for us. May your spirit make it profitable now. Be with him who speaks and they who hear. For the glory of your name we ask. Amen. Well, as we've read Zephaniah, um, one thing, at least for me, that, that uh, certainly stands out is how familiar it sounds. Uh, how familiar the, the sinful world sounds in chapter 2 to our own. And how familiar, sadly, uh, the beginning of chapter 3 with its description of the visible church sounds to the church in our day. Uh, 2,600 years have passed. And it doesn't sound that different. With violence and pride and arrogance and mockery and disdain and hatred and self-worship. With with, uh, the, the church full of wolves and lions in leadership seeking to devour and uh, destroy and seek their own and pollute worship and and do violence to God's word. It sounds very similar, and so does the culture of his day. It can be discouraging. Last week we we looked at God's call to seek him, to come in repentance, and I hope that is is an accurate reality of, of our lives, that we are those who repent, and seek the face of the Lord, not just in a form in our bulletins on Sunday, uh, but daily. I think that's true for you here. But it can still be discouraging when we look around us. 
and feel overwhelming when we hear of wars and rumors of wars and shootings and wickedness in general. The humble that Zephaniah talks about who seek God's face, who seek righteousness in all meekness, they, they seem few and far between. Maybe especially when we are in a congregation that feels so small. And, and we, we know that we're not the only gospel church in Franklin County or in the world, uh, but we can still feel very much like there are few, few who are true believers. And so the thought of God's righteous judgment may lead us to tremble a little bit. And it may lead us to to cry out, perhaps with the prophet Amos, we're so small. There's so few of us. How can any, how can any survive the wrath that's coming? What, what if we get caught up in it? But what if that wrath just devours us with all the wicked? We're so, we're so small and we're so unrighteous too, in and of ourselves. But what if the judgment just burns us all? That, that could very much be a result of reading Zephaniah a feeling we have, and it could be something we wonder at when we look around us. As we continue looking at Zephaniah, today we hit the turning point in that prophet. Just as uh, his successor, hundreds of years later, John the Baptist, as, as in the same position of prophet for the coming king, uh, went from flee the wrath to come to the more comforting behold the Lamb of God. Now Zephaniah, too, has that moment from the coming of the wrath and even in our text, I'm going to bring the nations together, says the king, for my judgment. And Zephaniah, the voice of God, announces as herald. But that judgment's not the only thing. There's also a remnant. The king will have some who remain when all else is burned up. A remnant that he has retained in the midst of all the wickedness. I was thinking this week of that remnant. The the obvious thing we can think of, it's the immediate fulfillment in, in Israel's history. It's something that Zephaniah is in part pointing to. It's the return of the exiles to Jerusalem 70 years later. Those who weren't taken into exile thought that God loved them the most and the exiles were the ones God was judging. But the first half of Ezekiel, God goes out of his way to say through Ezekiel to the exiles, I'm guarding you from the wrath to come. And he sends letters through Ezekiel to Jerusalem and says, you're not better, you're worse. I'm going to consume you all. I removed my remnant so they wouldn't see cannibalism and violence and burning fire and death. And I'm going to bring them home. But you better repent because you're not the remnant. You're not the remnant who was taken into captivity. 
So there's that immediate aspect. Zephaniah, Zephaniah, not too long before that, is talking about those who will come back. But he's also talking about something bigger in our text here. There's language that goes universal. And eschatological. Uh, e- eternal. A language of something that goes to a time when there will be no more wickedness in the world. And so he's using the immediate reality in the history of Israel. It's about to happen. It's imminent. To also point us ahead to the eternal. And that's what we want to focus on today. As we think about the, the remnant that God is retaining. We could think of the remnant in terms of uh, that parable Christ tells of the wheat and the chaff. The field is being grown and there is a lot that is false in there. There's a lot that is not real wheat. And on the day of God's judgment, when the king comes again to judge the living and the dead, to judge all nations, he will have his angels pull the tares out and burn them. There's going to be a remnant left in the field of wheat. There's going to be wheat there. It's not all burned. God's remnant. So, so let's think a bit about what this, this remnant is or what it receives from Zephaniah chapter 3 this morning. A number of things we can note today. And the first... The first is that the remnant is called to wait. Last week, we were called to seek the Lord, to repent, to call upon him when he is near. But we are also, having done so, called to wait on him patiently, to wait on his timing, to wait on him. Verse 8 uses this language, wait for me. And we're not used to this style of language, but it's the type of language of attending on a monarch. That used to be the phrase, you know, I I don't know, guardsmen in in waiting, ladies in waiting. I don't know what the male version of that is. I I know I didn't get it right. Ladies in waiting, gentlemen in waiting, I guess, for a a prince. the idea that, that you are not only just waiting for their decision of what you're going to do today. If the, if the princess says she's going to ride on her horse, then you have to ride on your horse. You're waiting uh, for her decision on what she's doing, but also waiting upon her. You're there, and you're ready to do service in their timing. And verse 8 has that idea, therefore wait for me, says the Lord. To whom? To his people. Wait for me, says the Lord, until the day that I decide to draw all the nations to the day of judgment. We are in that one word called to wait his timing and to serve him along the way, in the way he wants We'll come back to that in a moment. But he is declaring that we are to wait 
in terms of the timing for his day of judgment. We look at our culture sometimes and say, it's so bad. Why isn't God doing anything about it? Why isn't he bringing justice? And he's saying to us, the remnant, in every age of the world, in Zephaniah's own day, the remnant who was saying, God, why aren't you bringing justice? And in our day, the remnant who says, God, why aren't you bringing justice? And he says, wait for my timing. We even read it today with Bill. Although I chose the New Testament reading based on this being Ascension Sunday, one of the things our Lord said to us right before he left was, wait. You don't know the hour. You don't know the seasons. All these things are going to happen. You wait. You wait until my father says, today is the day of judgment. And as the remnant, we can, we can think of the day of judgment as the day of justice. God's wrath is not an arbitrary, mean fire. It is the day when the righteous judge brings absolute justice to the universe. It's our calling to wait on that time. And as we wait to know that wrath is not all he has planned for that day. That, that's a big part of what our text is saying, isn't it? He says, I'm going to bring this fire, this jealousy, this devouring thing, my fierce anger, for then I will restore. I'm going to bring about something positive out of this. And I've kept my remnant is part of that equation. We are to wait as he redeems and reconciles a people for himself. Titus 2.14 Notice, notice as we wait then, the emphasis of our text. We are called to wait on the Lord. We are called to wait on the Lord who takes action, who does things. Just just three examples from our text that are very explicit. Verse 12, it is God who leaves the remnant in the midst of the nations. I think sometimes we have this kind of mistaken theology in the church that um, the day of wrath is going to come. God is going to burn everything up and then maybe God will then discover how much wheat there really was. How many of us had enough repentance and faith to survive the coming storm? But that's not what Zephaniah says here about the day of judgment and about us being a remnant. It's not that we do this work and somehow then survive the day of wrath. It's that he says, verse 12, I 
will leave in that midst, your midst, a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant. I will leave the remnant. Then verse 9, God says, I will restore the remnant. I'm the one doing it. You're not going to somehow figure out how to get back to paradise regained. I will restore you to my presence here in this life spiritually and eternally into my presence in paradise. And then verse 11b, he says, it is he who will take away the false and unbelieving even in us so that we will no longer be haughty, but rather can come in humble repentance. He's not only going to remove the chaff, other people, but he's going to remove the chaff in our own hearts. The, the remaining sin. He's going to do the work of sanctification. And on that last day when we see Christ face to face and we are like him, for we will see him as he is, he's going to remove the last remnant of sin from your heart. So that you will do nothing in eternity but righteousness. God does these things. We wait on his work. Secondly, our text shows us the remnant is called from all nations. Again, the immediate fulfillment of the remnant being brought back is brought back to Jerusalem. And that immediate fulfillment is Israel. As our text says, verse 13, the remnant of Israel. And yet, all we have to do is look at verse 13 and know that the immediate fulfillment coming back to Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah's days isn't the full fulfillment of verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. There's some pretty long prayers in Ezra and Nehemiah. Because the remnant was doing unrighteousness and speaking a lot of lies. This is pointing us to the eternal. To that remnant from all ages of which we are a part. And the text as a whole makes that clear. The text as a whole shows that this is not uh, just Israel, some people of God just made up of the blood of Abraham but made up of those who with Abraham are people of faith and therefore are the true Israel of God. And we see this in our text. We see it perhaps most powerfully in verse 9 when he says, Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him in one accord. I'm a week off on my preaching schedule. In one sense, it was one of those perfect providences. In two weeks, I'm on vacation. And Lord willing, next week we finish Zephaniah. What, what great. Then we can anticipate me coming back and starting a new series. In another sense, I'm a week off. 
Because verse 9 is talking about Pentecost. At the Tower of Babel, humanity with one tongue and one heart had united to overthrow the king from his throne. They thought they could ascend into heaven by their own work and be proclaimed equal to God. So what did God do? He gave them a divided tongue so that humanity in rebellion against God could not do so in a united fashion. We are divided amongst ourselves. Well, that's where all these issues come from, isn't it? Racism, social justice issues, wars and rumors of wars. What's going on in Ukraine right now is one of the results of the Tower of Babel. What's going on in our country right now with various issues are results of the Tower of Babel. And verse 9, God says, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to give one tongue again. And that tongue, it's not English. And it's not Hebrew. It's the tongue of worship. It's the tongue of the humble and meek who bows before their king. It's the tongue of the kingdom of heaven. And I don't mean by that that we seek for a tongue we don't literally know. It's the tongue that we are using in worship right here this morning. It's the tongue that others are using in different lands in their own languages as they sing and as they pray and as they worship. I will restore one pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord. That they may call on the name of the Lord in worship. Now this this was beautifully displayed at Pentecost. I think Pentecost is one of the most glorious and one of the most sad things in church history. The event was glorious. The the use of it in our churches is sad. Because so often the Christian church has viewed Pentecost and longed for extraordinary gifts, gifts that we use to divide us. Gifts we claim that others can't understand. Gifts that in practice are just babble, literally. But Pentecost was the opposite of that. It was the reversal of babble. It was, a, it was 12, for the most part, uneducated Jews who hadn't attended universities and we have no reason to believe knew multiple different tongues. And somehow as they preached, everyone heard the gospel and understood it in their own language from these 12 men. 
It wasn't that suddenly they were speaking other languages. The, the language of Acts seems to imply that two people with different languages might have been standing next to each other hearing Matthew preach, and they both understood him. They understood the gospel. And the barriers that had been erected at Babel were torn down. The gospel cannot be stopped. The good news of the right sovereign ruler who ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand cannot be stopped by the sinful rebellion of men. That's what Pentecost declares. And it was a miraculous moment, but it was a moment that continues in ordinary ways. The preaching of the gospel from any faithful pulpit is a continuation of Pentecost. Jesus didn't speak English. I I hate to break that to you. So I am a Pentecost preacher right now. I'm preaching in a a tongue that wasn't the original with the gospel. Emma and Louise, when they translate the Bible, they're doing the work of Pentecost. It's so ordinary. They're just, I mean, they're using dictionaries and translating words into an ordinary tongue. Yeah. Yeah. The work of Pentecost, turning back Babel and calling all peoples and all nations to see him who is lifted up from the earth, drawing all peoples to himself. Pentecost. And that's what Christ is saying through Zephaniah in our text. I will restore this. My remnant will be from all peoples and all tongues. So we see the remnant is to wait. We are to wait on God's timing and God's choices. And we, the remnant, are called from all nations. But third, Zephaniah wants us to see that the the remnant is called to respond We are to wait, but not wait dormantly. We are to respond. Getting back to that use of waiting. You you are waiting upon the, the ruler to do his will. What is it we are called to respond with in our text itself? Several things. First, we are called to respond by bringing worship. This phrase, call on the name of the Lord in verse 9. We probably, most of us, when we read that in English, think this is saying, repent and believe. Call on the name of the Lord. Be converted. And and that's a marvelous thing. Or maybe we think of it as those already converted in a similar light to what Peter does when he starts sinking in the Sea of Galilee. Lord, save me! Call on the name of the Lord. And that's a marvelous thing too, and we need to do that as well. But this phrase in the Hebrew, call on the name of the Lord, is often used in relation to corporate worship. And just one example of that, and I think the most beautiful example of that, 
is found in Genesis 4.26, where we're told in the days of Seth, men began, began to call on the name of the Lord. And if you're like me and most of the best scholars throughout history, when you get to that point, you say, didn't Abel call on the name of the Lord? Didn't Adam and Eve call on the name of the Lord? What, what's this began thing? And from Matthew Henry and others, we have a discussion of how this phrase is used to speak of corporate gatherings of worship. Seth, we could say Seth was the first pastor of a multiple household church. Well, you you can think about that. That's a little tangential, I realize. But but it is relevant here, isn't it? God is going to bring his remnant out and they are going to be a, a people who gather for worshiping him. He's going to gather us for worshiping, a remnant from far and wide. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring me an offering. Bring me, I read that wrong just now. Bring me my offering. I, I didn't misread it on purpose, but it's important for us to notice that difference. Because it isn't that they just worship him in however they desire. They're coming from all the nations of the world. But they don't bring a worship that is, that is first and foremost expressing their culture from which they came. D- don't misunderstand me. It's not possible for us, any of us, to worship without any cultural influence. The fact that I'm speaking English and you're all English speakers has to do with our culture. And that affects our worship, doesn't it? And there are other things like that. Music does. Whether or not we always acknowledge it, music does have an influence from culture. What you do with that, that's a separate discussion. But, but it, so, so I'm not saying that there's no cultural reality behind worship but it's not the driving force it's not the thing scripture mentions again and again the thing scripture mentions again and again is that we worship the lord in the way that he requires in a way that he desires and in a way that he commands and the reality is we can only worship god whatever our culture when we come through His offering. Beloved, you know His offering. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all nations to Myself. Whatever else our worship is, That can't be negotiated. 
and bringing sacrifices and offerings, and I don't just mean literal, but bringing things into worship from our past citizenship, our earthly citizenship, as if that will be meritorious, as if that will make it better for God, is not the biblical way. It is not that God, oh, he's, he's just going to be so much more pleased with all these different cultures. No, it's that we are called out of our culture to be a new citizen, a new citizen in Jesus Christ. Psalm 87, they'll come from all these lands, they'll get to the city gate, and Christ sits there recording, and he does not record, this one was born in Ethiopia. He records, this one was born here, in this city, my people. So we're to, to respond bringing worship, worship in a way that glorifies God by observing his commands for worship. And then we're to respond by living as those pardoned. Verse 11, in that day you shall not be shamed by any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my mountain. There are two things about that verse that testify to what a pardoned life should be. One of those things is that the one who is pardoned, the one who is pardoned is to live differently than they did before they were pardoned. We'll come back to that in a moment under a different heading. But you're not to go back out and keep living haughty, right? You've been pardoned. And therefore you will not go back and live the haughty life in my holy mountain. The other side to living as those pardoned, though, has to do with shame. The one who has been pardoned is not to walk around with their head drooping down in shame as if they hadn't received pardon. I think that's a hard one for us. Because we hear the assurance of God's pardon. But then we want to keep drooping some of us. Maybe some of you are proud enough that you don't struggle with that. So... Some of you are meek and humble and are therefore tempted with that meek and humbleness to walk around with a droopy head in shame as if you hadn't been pardoned. But shame is removed. Shame is removed. Why? Surely because he has borne our grief and he has carried our sorrows. No, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that we deserve. We droop our heads down thinking we still get chastisement, but the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Shame removed. That's how it ought to be. If you know the pardon of God, you ought not to walk around as if you haven't been pardoned. As if you're insecure and you don't really know. In that day, you will not be shamed for your deeds, any of your deeds. Well, the really bad ones, right? For any of your deeds. What an amazing thought. I want to show you an example of this. And it's in verse 10, I believe. We read there from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Why, why does he pick Ethiopia? There's a lot of other rivers beyond other nations he could have picked. I think it's interesting that Zephaniah uses Ethiopia twice in this short book. The other one was one we noted last week. In the midst of God being quite specific about the sins of various nations he's about to judge. This is all he had to say about Ethiopia. You, Ethiopia, also, you shall be slain by my sword. What they do! I, I mean, we know that they were sinners just like all people are sin- So we, we know they were deserving of it in the same way that we are deserving of it. But, but when God's being quite, quite specific about Philistia and Moab and Ammon and... Assyria. What Ethiopia do? They just get plopped down there. We, we want God to answer that question. But beloved, I, I think God answers the question in our text. Those who are his remnant from Ethiopia, who are part of his church by faith, shall not bear shame in front of us. God God is using Ethiopia as an example there. He could have picked any nation to do that with, by the way. But he chose to use Ethiopia here. As if to say, you you don't get to even know what they did. Because my son has borne their shame. Again, Psalm 87. One of the groups that is categorized as coming to the city of God is Ethiopia. But Christ doesn't register them as another Ethiopian. Here we go. He writes, this one was born here. Shame removed. Don't inquire. It's none of your business. Christ bore it on the tree. Now sometimes when we are witnessing or, or when we're rejoicing together in the grace of God in our lives, we, we choose to share 
the sins out of which he has brought us. But isn't it also beautiful that the shame is removed from that? Even if, even if I chose to say, you know, I really struggled with this sin in my life. And Christ, by his grace, has brought me out of that sin. I'm not living that way for the most part anymore. We're also able to follow it up with, and his grace is sufficient for me. Even me. It washes away my stain. I don't have to hang my head down. I I did that wicked thing. It was such an important part of my life. But bold we approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ our own. Not with heads down with shame. What a marvelous gospel. We are to live as those who have been pardoned. When the world hears you testify to the gospel, do they think, oh, that's just a droopy religion. Where we acknowledge our sin and, oh, woe is I. Or do they hear you say, I'm free at last. You're not, and I wasn't. But I'm free now, and you can be too. Third, we are to respond first by worship, second by living as those who are pardoned, third, responding by living as subjects. And here I'm getting back to that other part of living as one who is pardoned. You don't live the way you did before. You don't live like the pagan culture out of which you came. You live as a subject. Back to our starting point, as one who waits upon their monarch. For his, his will and does his will as a servant. Verse 9 declares our restoration is not only to worship, to call on the name of the Lord, but to serve him with one accord. The scriptures make clear that serving the Lord means obeying the king's commands and decrees. We have not been saved by our works, but we are called to live our redeemed life in obedience and service to the king. And this is why our Lord's own half-brother, James, who doesn't say, James, the brother of our Lord, but says, James, a slave of Christ, a slave of the king, like David. Oh, so much better to be a a doorkeeper in the house of our king. James says, a slave of my king. And then he goes on to say, faith that aren't accompanied by service to the king, it's not real faith at all. It's not faith in the ascended, resurrected Jesus. Faith can't stop at the cross at continues to the throne where he is ruling and reigning and therefore faith must respond in service to the reigning monarch one day one day 
verse 13 will be true for us as the remnant. Right now we are being sanctified by the Spirit. Right now we are called to grow in obedience, in the keeping of His law. And you are a failure at that. You'll see him face to face. And you'll be perfect at it. For all eternity. Fourth and finally, briefly, we also respond by living as sheep. Living as subjects, yes, but also living as sheep. If you look at verse 13, the New King James translates this in a way that, that indicates, For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. The, the emphasis there in the New King James seems to be putting the emphasis as if it is the remnant who shall feed and shepherd their own flocks. And I I suspect the reason why the New King James went that direction was because in chapter 2, God twice refers to a, a pagan nation that will be completely wiped out. And where they had lived before, Israel will now be able to graze their flock when the remnant comes back from Babylon. And so the translators of the New King James, I think, were taking that thought And putting it into verse 13. But the rest of verse 13 can't possibly be talking about the the return from exile back then. It's It's talking about eternity. When we will do no unrighteousness, never lie again. That's that's an eternal thought about us as the remnant. And so I, I think I think all the other translations, King James, uh ESV, New American Standard, NIV. They all translate this, that we, the remnant, are the sheep who are fed. We aren't the shepherds, we're the sheep. And we will be fed. And we will lie down. And one day in that context, we will never be afraid again. Beloved, the Lord is our shepherd now. And he gives us all that we need now. And in the midst of a world with shootings and violence and division, he leads us to good pastures and beside still waters now so that we can grieve but not as those without hope. But there's a sense in which we're still waiting for the day when he will put us to eat in front of our enemies. And we'll be at peace doing it. (laughs) When we won't tremble even a little bit. There will be no fear left in our hearts as as we eat. And our foes can do nothing about it. We're waiting for that day, aren't we? 
It's guaranteed for us in Christ, the Good Shepherd. We're waiting for that day. And so there's a now sense to verse 13, and there's an eternal sense. The Lord is our shepherd. We need not one. He feeds us, and we can lie down, and we can trust him by faith and not be afraid. Though the world crumble around us. Indeed, when the, when the fires of judgment come, and everyone else in the world is crying out for the hills to cover them, we'll be with the Lord, having met him in the air. And we won't need any mountains to cover us. The Lord is our shepherd. The king is coming. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. If you do not know him, if you have not trusted in him, with Zephaniah and John the Baptist, I call on you today, flee the wrath to come. And having fled to him, beloved in the Lord, know the peace beyond all understanding as you approach that day. Know the satisfaction and fullness of belonging to him and being in Christ. No matter what losses you face, no matter what trials you endure, no matter what inequities you are unable to fix, because you're weak and pathetic. And despite all this, know that our King is coming and He will shelter His remnant, His own special people, on the last day.